Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the book of Numbers. And chapter 23, I'm reading to you from a New King James Version rather than ESV. I will explain later. Numbers 23, and we're reading from verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He, that is God, has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what God has done! Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slave. I'm reading to you from a New King James. Apart from the fact that this is the text that I do my own study and uh, reading in, but I have to say that with the verse that I'm looking at in particular, which is verse 19 here, uh, I have to say that the translation is better with the authorised and the New King James. The, uh, the ESV translates verse 19, He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. And that enough should actually cause us to think, well, had God not beheld misfortune in Jacob, had he not seen trouble in Israel? But actually it's stronger than that. There are three translations, literally from the Hebrew of this verse, and they all say the same thing. He has not beheld iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen perverseness in Israel. So it's the first part of verse 19 that I'm drawing your attention to. God, he has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. So what? You might ask, what is the significance of that? Well, we need to understand context. If you don't know much about what Israel was doing, what was going on here, then this won't mean a thing. But what is going on in the scriptures? In Genesis, God created the world. That's the beginning of everything. And then there was the fall. We've considered that. There was a worldwide flood, and then there was a Torah of Babel, and the scattering of the nations. God chose one man, Abraham, and from him he raised a nation, Israel. And we read of them in the book of Genesis. And the Israelites come down into Egypt. In the second book of the Bible, in Exodus, we see the Israelites in Egypt and enslaved in an idolatrous nation. God brought judgment 
on Israel, on, on Egypt. He brought ten plagues, disasters, and he shattered that nation. And he brought the Israelites out of Egypt into, well, was going towards the promised land. He brings them into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, in Exodus, we read of this, he brings them out and he brings them to the Mount Horeb, he gives them the Ten Commandments, and there they raise up a tabernacle, a place where they worshipped him. And then you have the third book, Leviticus. God is a holy God, and we have to approach him in holiness. The book of Leviticus explains how they were, how we are to approach a holy God, how we are to live before a holy God. And then we come to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is about the wanderings of the Israelites in the wilderness. Their journeys for 40 years. Why were they there for 40 years? We will consider. Why is it called the book of Numbers? Well, it's full of numbers. It starts off with the census. God told Moses, you ought to count every male aged 20 and over. So he did that, and they did it by the tribes, and there were over 600,000 of them. And then, of course, there are the women. And then there are also the under-twenties. So we're looking at a gathering of about, I don't know, two and a half, three million people. That's a huge number of people voyaging, traveling, wandering through the wilderness. And then there are other lists, other censuses, and there are lists of offerings that are brought to the Lord and so on. But Numbers also tells us of how they journeyed and it tells us of what the Israelites were like. Now the Israelites had seen the ten plagues brought by God on Egypt. They had seen how God had shattered Egypt. And the Israelites had walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, and they had seen the entire Egyptian army drowned when God brought the Red Sea over them. They had seen that. You might think that these people who have been brought out by God might be grateful. No, they weren't. It is quite extraordinary. So we need to look back at how they responded to God, how they lived before God. When they were brought out, they complained when there was no water. They complained there was no food. Turn with me back to Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus 16 and verse 3, well, verse 2, the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. You have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they were angry. God gave them the food of angels, the food from heaven, manna, and he showed them this every day. They could collect it every day, a double portion on Saturdays or on the sixth day of the week, and they gathered none on the Sunday. God was faithful to provide them with food. They complained. They grumbled. The complaining went on in chapter 17. Go across to that. And in verse 2, 
The people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? These are people who have been rescued from an idolatrous wicked nation, but they still don't trust God. Then the most amazing thing, Moses had gone up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments from God. He brings them to the people. He goes back up up the mountain again to pray for them. And while he's up the mountain, he's gone all together for 40 days. And how do they, how do they respond? What do they do? Have a look. Turn on to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. And the first verse. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They'd walked through the Red Sea. They'd seen God drown the army. They think it's only Moses doing it by his cleverness. How can a man do that? And they don't trust God. They complain and they moan. And they ask Aaron, Moses' brother, to make them an idol. He did. He made a golden calf. And they fell down before it and they worshipped it. And then Moses came down the mountain and he destroyed it and he scattered them and he judged them. He put to death about 3,000 of them. He was furious. God was. Actually, on top of the mountain, God said, get away from these people, I'll destroy them, and I'll start again with you. Moses said, no, no, don't do that, because otherwise the rest of the world will say, you can't do what you promised to do. So Moses interceded. Wasn't the first time, wasn't the last time. We move on, come into the book of Numbers, come to chapter 11 of the book of Numbers. The wanderings of the Israelites in the wilderness. How did they wander? Chapter 11, verse 1. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. Though the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of them in the outskirts of the camp. So God burned up some of them with fire. He is so angry with them. Then drop down to verse 4. Now the mixed multitude were among them, yield to, to a tense craving, so the children of Israel also wept and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic, but no, our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. They despise the very food, the blessing and the grace of God. Well, God gave them food. He sent quail to them. He gave them meat. But have a look at verse 33. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of God was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. He kills a number of them with plague. But it doesn't stop there. Turn over to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron complain against Moses. 
elder sister, elder brother. And God has to deal with them too. He put leprosy on Miriam. He confronted them both and challenged them and disciplined them. And then into chapter 13. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. So they sent out 12 spies. And you, you may remember the story. They go up to the land, they find all the goodness of the land, they come back with a huge bunch of grapes, and they give a report, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, but there are giants there. There are cities with huge walls. We can't take this place. Well, of course, they couldn't buy themselves, but they didn't trust the God who brought them out. And they said, we can't do it. Ten of the spies said, we can't do it. Two of them said, yes, we can, trust. Chapter 14, verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we died in the land of Egypt, or if only we died in this wilderness. Huh. Joshua pleads with them. Verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them. How come God will remove their protection? And the Lord is with us. They didn't believe him. Do not fear them. Verse 10, all the congregation said to stone them with stones. <sighs> Verse 11, now the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I have performed among them, I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear it. For by your might you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them. Verse 15, Now if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken. And so on, he intercedes before God. And God listens and is merciful and said, I will not destroy them now. But, nevertheless, look at what he says in verse 32. Well, let's take it a little bit earlier than that. Verse 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered, according to your entire number, from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb 
and Joshua. Verse 33, but your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. And your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. I am the Lord. I have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil generation, congregation, who are gathered together against me in this wilderness, they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. That's how they were towards God. That's how God is acting towards them. So what is going on in Numbers 23? We say that there were probably about three million of them or so. There's this huge nation of people wandering through the wilderness. And the other people groups out there weren't very happy about that. The Israelites have already destroyed two people groups, the Amorites. King Sihon of the Amorites, the Israelites destroyed them completely because God gave them the victory. And then... Um, King Og of Bashan. They defeated him, they destroyed him completely, they killed him. King Og was a giant. Bit of a reminder and a challenge to the Israelites. We read in Deuteronomy uh, that Og, he had, his bedstead was made of iron and it was 13 feet long. He was a giant. And they defeated him and killed him. But they still complained. On it went. Um, we'd better look back actually at, verse, at, at chapter 21. Having uh, defeated those kings, in chapter 21 and in verse 4, it says they journey from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around Edom, so they're on the border of what's going to be Israel. And the soul of the people became very discouraged, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and there is no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. They've been given victories by God. They still complain. They still moan. They still don't trust. What does God do? Verse 6, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. God did not take away the serpents this time. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who was bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was if a serpent had bitten anyone. When he looked at the bronze serpent, he survived. Grace upon grace upon grace. Amazing. And of course that shows us a picture of Jesus in the New Testament. But they still complain and groan and mumble. Because at heart they're rotten and corrupt and wicked and sinful. A nation that was beside them, the nation of Moab, 
The king of Moab, King Balak, saw this huge nation come, and he was terrified. He had heard what they'd done to Sion. He had heard what they'd done to the giant Og in his nation, and he's scared. He knows he hasn't got the military strength to defeat them. So he tries another tactic. He tries witchcraft. He sends for a man called Balaam, who lived somewhere in the east. Now, Balaam's a curious character. We haven't got time to study him in detail. But Balaam was a sorcerer. Balaam had knowledge of the true God. He knew a certain amount about the true God. But he was also a sorcerer. He mixed an understanding and a knowledge of the true God with wickedness and evil. And Balak says, come to me, I will reward you richly. I want you to come and put a curse on these people. And uh, Balaam is challenged by God in this one. And Balaam tells Balak, I can only say what God gives me to say. I can't go beyond that. God restrained him. Balak brought him to a mountain where he could see the people. And Balaam brings a prophecy, but it's only what God gives him. And altogether, Balaam brings four prophecies, four oracles, they're called. The first one basically says this. This is my nation. They're not counted among all the other nations. They're precious to me. I bless them. Balak was very cross when he heard that. I didn't you bring you to say that. Right, so he takes Balaam up another mountain, and he says, well, try here. Look at those people. Curse them. And here's the second oracle, the second message that we have just read. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do, or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received, says Balaam, a command to bless. He, that is God, has blessed, and I, Balaam, cannot reverse it. He, that is God, has not observed iniquity in Jacob. Nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. He's saying, God looks on these people and he does not see any sin. Now, if you're reading your Bible intelligently and thinking about it, you've got to stop there and say, oh, hang on. <laughs> We've had chapter after chapter after chapter of rebellion. They've complained and complained and grumbled. You've sent fire. You've sent plagues. I didn't mention Korah's rebellion. He rebelled against Moses, and God opened up the ground under him, and he and his family all fell down into the earth. He sent fiery serpents amongst them. And yet, God says through Balaam, I see no sin in them. How? And he said in verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie. So, what goes on? Is God being politically correct? No, he doesn't do that. Is he turning a blind eye? No. God sees everything. He ignores nothing. And when they have rebelled, when their wickedness has manifested itself, he disciplines them. We've seen it time after time after time. So how can he say this? 
Why does he say it? Did he need to say it at all? Yes, he did. He said it for them. He says it for us. Why? What's he looking at? As God looks on this host of two or three million people, what is he looking at? What does he see? What did he see? Whatever it was, stopped him from seeing the sin. What can that be? To get the answer to that, we need to go back to Exodus. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 12. And verse 13. Exodus 12, here we have the tenth plague that was brought by God on Egypt. And this judgment was that God would move through Egypt and he would kill every firstborn in a family, whether it was Pharaoh or whether it was the lowest of the low, and even all the animals. That he would kill the firstborn unless a one-year-old sheep, ram, had been brought into the house and sacrificed and blood had been put on the doorposts and on the lintel of the house. There had to be a blood sacrifice. Now have a look at verse 13. God moved through Egypt and he saw every household, every family. Verse 13. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now what's he mean when he says, I will pass over you? Doesn't he know what they're like? What was the difference between Israelites and Egyptians? Answer, nothing, whatever. They were all the same. They were all corrupt-hearted, stiff-necked, rebellious, wicked, sinful, selfish, soulish people. So what made the difference as God moved through the land? The people, the smiles on their faces, the anger on their faces. When I see the blood, I will pass over. And that is what he did. And by passing over, what's he doing? Is he turning a blind eye? Is he shrugging his shoulders and saying, you're okay? No. It's more than that. When he passes over, what he's doing is, he is not seeing their sin. He knew they were in the houses. He knew who they were. He knew what they were like. And we're going to see in the book of Numbers as they go through, rebellious and so on. But he didn't see it. He didn't look at it. Now, you see, when we read that verse in uh, Numbers uh, 23, when God says he does not see the sin, he's not saying there is no sin in them. He wasn't saying that. He wasn't saying they're not sinners. What he was saying is he doesn't see it. And he didn't see it then. He made a judicial decision, a God of righteousness, not to look at their sin and instead pass over it and bless them. Didn't end there. It goes on. When the Israelites came into the desert, uh, they built the tabernacle. And there was sacrifice and worship there. 
uh, every day. Uh, turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 29. And verse 38, the sacrificial system, sacrifices in the tabernacle. Verse 38, now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And then down to 42, this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, where I shall meet you to speak with you. Every single day in a tabernacle, a lamb was sacrificed in the morning, a lamb was sacrificed in the evening. When I see the blood, I will pass over. So how come the judgments from time to time to time to time? The judgments come when the sin and the corruption that is in them manifests itself and bursts out in rebellion. When they broke out in rebellion against God, then he disciplined them. Then he killed them, or whatever it was. But when it wasn't manifesting itself and out of rebellion, there was still the sin nature. That sin nature inside every person. And God says, I don't see it, because I see the blood of the sacrifice. And that is why, in Numbers 23, God can say, in all truth, I see no iniquity in Israel. That's how come. Well, you might say, well, that, perhaps that's interesting, fascinating, but so what? After all, the matters we've been reading about took place uh, in a desert, in a wilderness somewhere in the Middle East, over three and a half thousand years ago. And here we are in Hoylake. This is 2023. We are modern technological people. We love golf. <laughs> we have technology. We've got mobile phones. We've got satellites. We can communicate with people all over, all over the planet. Global communication, great power, technology. What's this got to do with us? You've got these weirdy people doing spooky things up in the hills and so on. Ah, we don't do that. We're rational, scientific, capable people. So what relevance? How is this relevant to you and me here now? Well, just this. The God who sees. God still sees. So we're not thinking about deserts three and a half thousand years ago. The question, my friends, is this. What does God see as he sees you now and me? Nothing is hidden. No one can hide from God. He sees everything. What does he see? Don't think about the person in front of you, or behind you, or beside you, or out in the street. You 
It's personal because God is personal. He calls to you. What does he see? The answer to that is actually relatively simple. As God sees you, he sees one of just two things. What are they? One thing he might see is you. He has seen you and known you all your life, from the moment of conception, right through birth, right through childhood, right to up to now and beyond. And he knows every thought that you have ever had. He knows every word that you have spoken. He knows everything that you have done. He knows every place you've been. He knows everything. He sees. And he assesses it by himself. He is a holy God, holy and pure. Are you? Am I? How do we stand before a holy God? Have you ever had a wicked thought in your life? Have you ever lied? He sets the standard. Who can say that he is clean before God? He sees. And what he sees, he judges. Unless your sin is dealt with, then he will judge you. If you are not covered by the blood of Christ, then you are under the wrath of God. That is what the scripture teaches plainly. Not always a popular thought in churches today, but that is a plain biblical truth. Look at how God dealt with them, and he deals with us the same way. You don't feel it. You mightn't think about it. You might not be aware of it, but that is the reality. You are either under the wrath of God, or else you are under the love and the blessing of God. That is one thing that God might see as he looks at you. What is the other thing? The other thing is this, that if God is looking at someone who is a Christian, what does he see? A nice smiley face? No. What he sees is the blood of his son Jesus Christ shed at the cross for the forgiveness of all your sin. The Apostle Paul tells us in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5 and in verse 7, he says this, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for our sins. So when God looks on a Christian, he sees the blood of his son and he passes over every thought, every word, everything. So how is it with you? I don't know. Please do not come to me after the service and ask me what does God see. I don't. And what I see is irrelevant. It only matters what God sees. If you don't know God, 
then what should you do? Simply acknowledge to him who he is, acknowledge to him who you are, and repent and confess your sin to him and ask him to forgive you and to be merciful to you. And if you do that, he will. He is gracious and merciful and loving. And if you beg him for mercy, he will forgive you and save you and change your life. It's free. And he will bless you in this life. Doesn't mean everything will go rosy and easy for you in life. There will be challenges. He will take you through the difficult times, but he will be with you. You won't be doing it by yourself. I urge you to consider the offer that God makes to repent and to turn to him. And if you are believers, then rejoice in him that he has you fully in his hand and that he will hold you and lead you through all that there is to be. Glory be to his name. Heavenly Father,